it uh, presented as just a, a, what I thought was a standard toothache. Uh, a left hand side uh, on the bottom. And so I went to the dentist and they looked at it and thought it looked a bit more serious and a bit beyond their remit. So then they decided that they'd <coughs> refer me on to a hospital uh, not far from us. And after waiting for six weeks to hear back from the hospital, nothing happened. Um, and then I got in contact with their dentist and they were a bit puzzled, but then they told me the paperwork had got stuffed up. Mm. So the whole procedure had to begin again. So another six weeks, had to wait another six weeks. <clears throat> in the meantime, it got worse. You're listening to Ben Shaw, and this is maybe one of the strangest, most difficult interviews I've ever done. He's a minister of religion, an amazing musician, and one of my oldest mates. He was the lead guitarist of the band that I sang for for years in the silence. And he's reliving some of the most painful and upsetting moments of his life. The day he heard two words that make all the difference. It's cancer. In this episode, we're delving into that frightening world. According to the World Health Organization, cancer is the second leading cause of death internationally, accounting for an estimated 9.6 million fatalities in 2018 alone. That's one in six deaths. But cancer isn't just a medical battleground. It's a spiritual one as well. Through the ages, myriad human voices have cried out, My God, why? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academic and its extraordinary new book, The New Testament in Its World, by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird. Every week, we'll be exploring some aspect of life, faith, history, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we'll be trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. Cancer is an undiscriminating disease. It can appear in almost any part of the body and in any age group. Each year, 300,000 cases of cancer are diagnosed in children alone. Friends of ours from church recently lost their beautiful five-year-old daughter to cancer. I dedicate this episode to them. Cancer afflicts every country on earth. The poorest, of course, suffer the most because they can't afford the high costs associated with prevention or treatment. And the costs for those who can pay are staggering. Cancer costs 1.16 trillion US dollars a year. But there's an even more expensive question. The question of suffering. How do people who reckon there is some kind of good God in the world, which surveys tell us is most human beings, cope with cancer in the world? 
back to Ben's toothache, where it all began. This is Ben's wife, my dear mate, Karen. They thought it was an infected wisdom tooth at one stage. So mm. in about June, mm. it swelled up. Mm. Really bad sort of infection type swelling. Went on antibiotics. Mm. And then in July, that happened again. And it wasn't right. So we'd, we'd basically taken matters into our own hands, but we had to because it had swollen. And my face was, yeah, looking like a chipmunk on one side. And they found something that looked like a cyst. Mm. Um, they took the wisdom tooth out and did a biopsy of the cyst and didn't expect. They said, this is just something we do. It looks really fine. It looks benign. looks fine. And um, two weeks later, you were called to yeah. come into an appointment at the cancer centre, mm. which was slightly... Alarming. Unusual and alarming. <laughs> mm. The bad news was um, a diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma, um, a very large tumour in the jaw, the left side of Ben's jaw, um, and he was told that he would have to have a mandibulectomy, neck resection and fibular free flap, which essentially means taking out the left half of the jaw and four teeth. All the everything, mm. and <clears throat> reconstructing it using the fibula bone, which is the small bone in the leg, and a piece of skin to graft the gum. So that was essentially the news. But delivering that news was a beautiful professor who did it gently and told Ben that he would only be able to handle some of the news, and so gave it in four consultations. Wow. Do you remember when you first heard the word? Cancer? Well, when this news was first given, I was sitting down, Karen was by my side, and then he began to say, I'm going to take part of your leg and put it in your jaw, and I'm going to rob six months of your life and change your life forever. Even though I was sitting down, I, had, I started to feel like woozy, and I said to him, I think I need to lie down. It's, it's quite... Amazing to hear something and actually physically go, this is going to put me on the deck if I don't lie down. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, th thankfully there was a bed in the in the consultation room and so I, I lay down on that. I remember you said to me, you, you asked him, what if you didn't do the surgery? Mm. And he said, you've got 12 months to live, maybe 18 Cancer is so destructive, it's become a byword for anything that fundamentally undermines and systematically destroys things. We talk about political corruption as a cancer of the state. Buildings get concrete cancer. And if we're looking for an almost unattainable goal, we talk about the cure for cancer. Well, Professor Tim Morn is one of those researchers pursuing the unattainable goal. He is Professor of Clinical Oncology and the Director of the Oxford Institute for Radiation Oncology at the University of Oxford. He oversees dozens of programs designed to understand cancer better. I asked him to go back to the beginning. What is cancer? Cancer is a disease of cells. And if you think about a cell, it is the most extraordinary, complex, brilliant organisation. It's, a, it's more complicated than a Formula One car. 
It has feedback mechanisms which control it. And our bodies are made up of these wonderful little things called cells. And cancer is a disease when those control mechanisms begin to go wrong. So we have brakes and we have accelerators on all of our cells which control it. And some of the key mistakes that happen due to mutations or loss of genes are, can be analogized to losing your foot brake or your handbrake. And imagine driving a car when your foot brake doesn't work and your handbrake's failed and then your foot's stuck on the accelerator and then the steering wheel falls off. The engine keeps going and it's chaos. That's what cancer is. Cells that have lost control and are beginning to behave autonomously. What are the worst cancers? I mean, I mean most deadly by numbers in our Western societies. Well, I think pancreas cancer is the most deadly in terms of the number of patients who die of it out of the proportion who get it. So pancreas cancer has been the one where there's been the least progress. Prognosis is still less than 5% survival and it hasn't shifted in the last 30 years. The, the, the ones that people most commonly die from, well, the, the, the big four are lung cancer, bowel cancer, breast cancer and prostate cancer. And it does vary across the world according to how much people smoke. In smoking, high smoking areas, lung cancer is always the top. Where smoking is getting less, then the others jockey for top position. Uh, you lead research teams and work out multi-million dollar grants for research teams and so on. So can you tell me, um, where is the most interesting or hopeful research today? What is the most interesting or hopeful lines of research to combat cancer? Well, the biggest news in the last five years has been the introduction of effective immunotherapy. So that is basically switching on the immune cell to recognize cancer as foreign and to be able to kill it. And the first drugs in that space have been, they've been called checkpoint inhibitors. And it's kind of like taking the blindfold off the immune system. And those work in cancers where there are high levels of mutations. For Ben and Karen, immunotherapy wasn't an option. Yeah, he said there is no choice. You have to have this. And the only way to get rid of it is surgery. And this is the only surgery. He was admitted to hospital on 29th was the surgery. Yeah, so 16 hours of surgery the first time. So that was doing the first procedure. And then you had the emergency. You had a blood clot. Yeah, yeah. The the, um, operation basically failed. Um, I had a twisted artery. Is that right? Uh, And... Them. So there was no blood flow through the new um, jaw. New jaw. So uh, thankfully, I mean, I was completely out of it, but thankfully, um, one of the nurses cottoned onto this. There was a machine plugged into my jaw, basically, that was monitoring the blood flow and the pulse rate and everything. And um, yeah, they realised there was something wrong. So they had to get the surgeon back in who had already just done 16, 17 hours of surgery and they did a further four or five hours surgery to correct what had happened. Do you have any recollection of all that or is it just those days of the blood? 
Oh, well, oh, no, I was completely out of it. So I, I, I came at, the The only thing I can remember is from when I got out of the surgery the second time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and even those, probably the, the first 24 hours were a bit hazy. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything's... Oh, uh, crystal clear. Crystal clear. <laughs> For Karen, crystal yeah. Clear. Karen is a medical professional, but it wasn't enough to insulate her from the grief of watching her husband go through the ravages of cancer. Can you put in words what you were feeling? I think you you and I had a conversation where the first time I cried was with you just because I had to be strong. I'm in a new job. I'm a director in this hospital. I'm trying to be strong for Ben. I'm keeping it together, and it's that crisis mode that you go into Um my lifeline to people was the group that I'd set up. And, and the WhatsApp that, group. Yeah, yeah, the WhatsApp group where people were praying and I was sending messages. But it was just like my heart was being squeezed. Um, I There were moments I thought I was going to lose him. Just mm. I'd just turned 50, so mm. Um, mm. a month before, and I thought, I'm a widow at 50. Mm. And then one. Breathing issues, post surgery, vomiting through the tracky pipe, all this sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, having a tracky in is, I now sympathise with people who have had trackies now because <laughs> they are horrible. It's it's the tracky Ben's talking about here. Of course, isn't the daggy sweatpants Australians call trackies? It's a tracheotomy, that life-saving surgical procedure where they cut a hole in the windpipe and insert a tube so the patient can breathe. It's brilliant, but it's pretty awful, and it sometimes doesn't work. They're, they're bad enough in themselves, but when they get a little blocked, then it's, it's really terrible. It's, it's so bad when you, can't, when you feel yourself, you can't breathe properly. And I had that for at least two or three days um, and then they finally cleared it and that was just so was relieving. So <laughs> but ben couldn't speak, he was writing on a mm, piece of paper mm. and so he would, the frustration would come through by you writing and then banging the piece of paper saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Help me. One mm, time you wrote mm. in big letters, help mm. me. Yeah, I was and that really for me struggling. was just heartbreaking it's moments like these when you just can't hide from the question of suffering loads of us ask it whether we're believers or skeptics a friend of mine is a Qantas captain g'day Corne and uh, one evening he was looking out of the flight deck window at thousands of bright stars in the night sky and he turned to his first officer and said look at that it's hard to believe there's no God hey the first officer shot back not when you've been through war and seen what I've seen. My mate quickly changed the subject. I think it's generally agreed today by philosophers in cool-headed moments anyway that suffering can't be a knockdown argument against God, not a logical one anyway. The emotional questions are much more difficult. The popular intellectual argument usually goes like this. One, an all-powerful God could end pain. Two, an all-good God would and pain. Three, since pain exists, an all-powerful, all-good God doesn't exist. But there's a widely recognised problem with premise two. We just don't know that an all-good God would necessarily end all pain. 
In order to sustain that argument, we'd first have to show that God couldn't, even in principle, have decent reasons for allowing a world in which pain is a reality. In ordinary human life, there are plenty of examples where we ourselves, in good conscience, allow pain for decent ends, whether self-improvement, in medicine, with our own children, and so on. None of these may correspond to God's reasons. That's not really the point. But if we, with our limited knowledge, can think of noble ends that justify pain, we just can't logically rule out that an infinitely wise God could have infinitely better ends in mind for allowing a world in which pain exists. This discussion goes way back to Augustine in the 5th century, but it was Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century that set things in the clearest form, and his argument really stands. If creating a universe with the capacity to go astray achieves nobler ends than creating a universe without the capacity to go astray, then an all-good God would choose to create the first kind of universe over the second. And since he's all-powerful, he'd be able to achieve those ends to the satisfaction of all. And as I say, if we can imagine any case in life where a noble end satisfies the pain associated with it, we at least have an analogy for the divine plan. I offer this only as a response to those who say that suffering is a logical proof against God's existence. It really isn't. But I imagine those of you who have really experienced pain in cancer or some other form will find all this logical analysis a bit tone deaf and beside the point. It doesn't really help with the ongoing practical and emotional problem of suffering. Those problems have been around forever and they aren't going anywhere soon. Professor Tim Morn again. Well, there's evidence of cancer in a, an Egyptian mummy. So it has been around for a long time. But we know that a lot of cancer is due to um, environmental factors, like smoking, um, environmental pollution, the diet we eat, various viruses that we pass around between us, which set cancer off, for instance, HPV and hepatitis um, virus. So there are lots of things that, that increase the risk of um, cancer, which are related to our modern society. How hopeful are you that in 50 years from now uh, we will be able to conquer most cancers? I think in another 50 years we will still have the problem of late presentation. So people turning up because cancer is subtle. It doesn't announce itself. And so we will continue to have late presentation um, in some, particularly the people who don't particularly join in with screening programs. Um, we will still, cancer will never have one solution. Struggling to find their own solution, Ben and Karen have made it to the intensive care ward. Ben can't speak. He's desperately writing, reaching for relief, and Karen is struggling to understand. To and watch. at one point, Ben throws two fingers at you, then three fingers oh, at yeah. you, two fingers at and you, three fingers And then points to his head, well, points to his head, and I'm like, yeah, think... <laughs> yeah, so this a nurse came in and I'd asked Karen to read. And you don't but you didn't ask because you all you did was two, two three. three. And then point to your head, which is oh. think about it, two, three. I'm At like, I, I'm trying to work it out. When he kept going, think it through. Psalm twenty three. Hmm. Read Psalm twenty three. And then I was like, Oh, okay. 
And then I'd start to read and quietly because you're in an intensive mm-hmm. care unit. You don't want to read. And then he'd tell me to elevate my voice, ele- <laughs> speak louder, and then point to the nurse. Speak loud enough so the nurse can hear. So I had to read really loudly Psalm 23 in the intensive care unit. And he was nodding. The most beautiful thing in that whole time was um, when I'd read some scripture hmm. and you just, it was like a, a, a smile would come over hmm. your face. It's like, yep, thank you. I need it. I need this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's amazing how vivid um, and powerful the scriptures become when you're in a situation like that. And I remember reading a quote somewhere that God sometimes puts us on our backs in order to get us to look up. And I was certainly on my back and looking up to God, thinking, not wise me or woe is me, but just... um, reaching out to God, knowing that he was reaching to me. And I know the scriptures just became just more vivid. More after the break. Hey, I've got a recommendation for you today. I'm holding in my hand one of the most important books, really, to be published in the whole area of Gospels, New Testament, all that stuff, for the last, I don't know, 10 years. It's by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird, top-tier scholars, and it's called The New Testament in Its World. It's basically an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians. Look, it's a thousand pages long, but here's the thing. Whether you are a skeptic or a believer, I reckon this is like the one book you could get if you want to understand the Jewish, Greek, and Roman historical background to the life of Jesus and the Gospels, if you want to know about the life of Paul and his missions, uh, how the early Christians spread throughout the Roman world, how to read these ancient documents, uh, this is the one-stop shop. I kid you not, I can't recommend this highly enough. The New Testament in its world by N.T. Wright, and Michael Bird. You can check it out online at all of the usual bookstores, but you might also want to go to zondervanacademic.com. Ridley College is a national college at the forefront of Christian thought, whether you want to do a diploma or a doctorate. I lecture there in public Christianity, so I'm a little bit biased, but it is an amazing multi-denominational college where we train men and women online and on campus for Christian service in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. Find out more at ridley.edu.au. It's interesting, having come out of the surgery and then you sort of see your face is skewered here and you've got a 
uh, and you groove in your cheek and all that sort of thing, you kind of, um, your looks do matter to you. As I thought I wasn't so vain. I thought, oh, it won't matter. But then when you see yourself looking different and not quite the same, you go, oh, I wish I did look uh, the same. And and so it, I've become shyer. Mm. Um, if we're walking in, into shops and I, I find myself, my head down a little more or I'm turning the other way or I put my hand over my 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 chin um yeah so you, you become a little more self-conscious ben talks about the fallenness of the world a kind of discord that interrupts the melody of life and somehow he says god inhabits that fallenness with us tim morn one of britain's leading cancer warriors says something similar does thinking about cancer as much as you do in your life dent your Christian faith? I mean, how do you simultaneously believe in a good creator and this malignant thing in our bodies that you face day in, day out? Well, there's lots of bad things that happen in this world and you only have to visit or work in a um, an undeveloped or developing country to realise that there are many people who have a very, very tough um, deal in this life. So there are lots of bad things that happen. Bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to all sorts of people uh, in this world. And the amazing thing to me is that um, that God operates in that environment and that he comes to meet with people and he walks with us in the middle of that bad stuff. He did that in Jesus and he does it in life now. So he's not a God who fixes stuff. He's not in the sense of making everything nice and rosy. Um he is a God who inhabits our frailties and walks with us through our sufferings. And he's amazing. Press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus. Ben, Karen and Tim all speak of God being present in the ugliness of the world. I think this is one of the most unusual aspects of what the Bible says about pain and suffering. The most pressing question for those actually experiencing pain isn't why does God allow it, but where is he? What's his attitude? I mean, when my daughter Josie hurts herself, she doesn't rush and ask, Dad, why the pain? How will it be resolved? She just wants to cry and she wants to know that I've got her, that I'm with her, that I sympathize. The Old Testament in the Bible invites everyone who wants to cry out to God. My mate Ben mentioned Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and all that. But the Psalm immediately before it strikes a very different note. Psalm 22 opens with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. 
pretty confronting stuff. It's a reminder that sometimes crying out, my God, is just as rational, just as permissible as saying, the Lord is my shepherd. The presence of Psalm 22, immediately before the more famous Psalm 23, tells us that God is okay with both. God invites us to cry out to him. But the most extraordinary part of the Bible's plotline is that God showed up in the ugliness personally. He himself has experienced rejection, injury, agony, a final breath. And this is nowhere clearer than in the crucifixion scene in all of the Gospels. There, the cry of the anguished poet of Psalm 22 actually becomes the cry and circumstances of Jesus on the cross. In his final moments, Jesus searched for words to convey his innermost feelings. And he cried Psalm 22. Mark 15 says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, citing Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a cry of self-doubt from Jesus' lips. This is a deliberate and agonizing identification with the suffering poet of Psalm 22. And so with anyone who's ever felt like crying, my God, why? This vision of God can comfort those who suffer, not just because he is all-knowing, but because he's experienced pain firsthand. God isn't passive, it turns out, not distant, but involved and himself wounded. It's a point made, actually, by one of the 20th century's greatest atheists, the Frenchman Albert Camus. Camus usually wrote of the futility of life, the unrelenting silence of the universe, but he admitted that he saw in the cross a potential answer to human longing for divine sympathy. In his essay, which became a book, The Rebel, he wrote these words. The man-god suffers too, with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him, since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man, only because in its shadow, the divinity abandoned its traditional privileges and drank to the last drop, despair included, the agony of death. Camus was an atheist, but he knew something about the core of the Christian faith. If it's true that God knows our pain firsthand because he's experienced it, it follows that we don't just shout at God as the one ultimately responsible for this universe. We can run to him for comfort, knowing that he's been there, he understands, he's got us. Ultimately, that's what Christianity offers us in our pain. Not just some philosophy, but a story of the God who himself shares our wounds. You can press play now. Ben has been smacked across the head, literally, by his cancer. He's lost some things along the way, but he hasn't lost his guitar, nor his perspective. Is it recording? Yeah. Thank you.
So I have to ask the question, what on earth do you make of cancer from a Christian point of view? How do you get your head around that? Um, well, both you and I know um, perhaps more acutely than some others of the of a world that's broken, which includes cancer and suffering and death. Um, and so having lost my mum when I was seven, <clears throat> seven years old, I was already attuned to a broken, fallen world that includes our bodies. So um, in a weird way, I was slightly prepared for it. And I'd always thought all my life that, <clears throat> you know, one day I'm going to get something. Um, you know, none of us are going to live forever. So I was kind of prepared for it. Do you feel the pressure to act like you believe that stuff you've been preaching? Or are you really feeling those things? <laughs> I don't feel any pressure. Um, none, none whatsoever. I just really believe that. Um, I'm, yeah, none of this has, uh, has affected my faith whatsoever. It's strengthened mine. I think that I physically felt, even though there wasn't anyone with me during the whole procedure, mm. particularly through the crisis period, mm. um, just the the Bible and the comfort through the Bible, I felt physical mm. connection that I hadn't had before. And also just that utter reliance on the Lord is something I've never needed as much. And... There is something quite beautiful in crisis tragedy that as a Christian clinging to that promise of the Lord, mm. um, I, felt, I felt a physical comfort that mm. I really haven't had before, even though we've mm. had a few crises at church and mm. walking through um, pain and suffering with other people, I haven't had that before. And I actually look back on it even though it was tragic, it was quite beautiful as well. Mm. Uh, I, I, I do believe the Bible. I do believe that it teaches us that we're in a broken, fallen world that is uh, in constant decay, um, including our bodies. I often tell people in my church that four things break in the Garden of Eden, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our bodies, and even creation itself is marred. And so I've been preaching that doctrine um, for years, decades, um, and now I'm just more of a visual living example of it. I'm not pretending that this solves everything. I still ask questions. Watching my dearest mate go through cancer, still going through cancer, has challenged me. Not so much intellectually, but certainly psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. I've been reminded again of what one of my favourite writers wrote a few years ago. Francis Spufford was a British atheist and intellectual who, through an experience of life's sadness actually, found himself almost accidentally an Anglican. He wrote, 
We don't ask for a creator who can explain himself. We ask for a friend in time of grief, a true judge in time of perplexity. We don't say that God's in his heaven and all's well with the world, not deep down. We say all is not well with the world, but at least God is here in it with us. We don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story. For a Christian, the most essential thing God does in time, in all of human history, is to be that man in the crowd, a man under arrest and on his way to our common catastrophe. Got questions about this or other episodes? I'd love to hear them, and perhaps we'll answer them in our upcoming Q&A episode. You can tweet it to us at Undeceptions. Send us a regular old email at questions at undeceptions.com. Or if you're brave, head to undeceptions.com and press the little button to record your question straight through to us. While you're there, check out everything related to this episode and sign up for the Undeceptions newsletter to get access to bonus content and plenty more from each episode. If you like this show, let me give a little shout out to Salt Conversations with Jenny. It's another member of the Eternity Podcast Network. Jenny Salt does these in-depth interviews with people whose lives have been challenged and changed by their encounter with God. I was recently in the hot seat with her and she has a lovely, gentle way of extracting exactly what she wants out of you. Anyway, give it a listen over at eternitypodcasts.com. Next episode, creation, evolution, the six days of Genesis, and all sorts of other completely uncontroversial things. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced and directed by Mark Hadley. I can't wait till Kaylee Payne comes back from maternity leave. Love your work, Kaylee. Our theme song is by Bach, arranged by me and played by the fabulous Undeceptions band. Editing by Bryce McClellan. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is part of the Eternity Podcast Network, an audio collection showcasing the seriously good news of faith today. Head to Undeceptions.com. You'll find show notes and other stuff related to our episodes. And over the coming weeks, we're transforming Undeceptions.com into a whole library of audio, video, and printable stuff from lots of communicators designed to undeceive and let the truth out. You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network. EternityPodcasts.com.au